Hi everyone, welcome back to the IMH Forum 18 podcast. I'm here with Owen Kalaki, Head of Functional Recovery and Youth Mental Health from Origin in Melbourne, Australia. Hi Owen, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. So you're en route from Boston. Uh, <laughs> you've managed to kind of stay awake long yeah. enough to do a presentation this morning, which was fantastic. Well, well, 45 you. minutes, went down really well in the room. Um, and yeah, you covered all kinds of different topics. Okay, your vision for kind of youth mental health services and what you're doing in Australia and loads of research. And you spoke about the US perspective. One question that really stood out for me in the, in the Q&A at the end from Karen Newbigin was about your recommendations for youth mental health policymakers here in the UK. And you answered that really interesting. So, yeah, tell us about that. I think, um, you know, speak, speaking to policymakers, I, I think that there's, there's two things to, to sort of put to them. And one is, um, can they afford not to invest in youth mental health? And uh, I think what I was saying in answer to Karen was I was looking at um, these books of poetry by you know the world war one sort of poets and, it, and i was reflecting on what was lost to the world by their loss in, in that war you know whether they would have gone on to create art or research or whatever it might have been and i think to myself you know there's a there's a quarter of young people will experience mental illness in their lives and we know that that can quite often derail their kind of vocational progress, um, their capacity to achieve their dreams and, and, and to do that. And so I guess what I was saying is, can we afford as a society to lose a quarter of our young people um, to mental ill health, that, to have them not achieve the things that they might have achieved, whether that would be a, a regularly ordinary life where they just get a job and contribute to their communities and um, you know, spend their money down at the shop so that creates a job for someone else, or perhaps they might have even gone on to, to greater things. So can policymakers afford not to invest in, in this new generation and making sure that they, they can as much as possible achieve their potential? And then the second thing I'd say to the policymakers is, can you ignore the evidence? Because when you look at um, youth mental health, and in particularly uh, the evidence base around early psychosis, it's one of the most evidence-based interventions uh, we have in, in mental health. And there's a lot of money gets spent uh, on things that probably over time have been shown not to work. Um, so, for example, the system that we have at the moment where the, you know, the cut point is 18 and the child and adolescent service doesn't really line up with the adult service, you move from a developmentally informed way of thinking to a, a symptom management way of thinking right at the point in people's lives where they are trying to make all of these transitions, you know, from dependence to independence, from thinking about work to trying to get into work, from living at home to, to moving out. Um, right at that moment where the support needs to be strongest, the system is weakest, and that makes no sense at all. And do you think we've got the balance right between developing interventions to treat people for mental illness and the prevention and early intervention work that you're talking about? Um, I think that we probably need to continue to do both. Um, the, the big issue, I think, is probably about how we translate that stuff and make it available to people so that um, we have a pretty big evidence about what works. But when you look at what's available, there's a huge gap. There's a huge gap in, in the implementation and making accessible the interventions we know work. So as well as continuing to, to find better ways to do things, because, you know, and particularly in you know, the, the area that I'm most familiar with, which is psychosocial stuff, nothing works for everybody. We need to keep finding different approaches to try to 
get something which works for as many people um, as possible. But at the same time, it, it can't stop at the end of the research study. There, there needs to be a coordinated move from the evidence we develop through the translation and implementation process so that a young person can go down to their, their local mental health service and actually access that evidence-based intervention. So why, why is there still this huge gap you know, whatever, whatever research you believe, 15 years, 20 years between research and practice. Mm. Where is the evidence kind of leaking out of the pipeline here? I've thought a lot about this. <laughs> um, and I think that there's different, different drivers of it. So on the research side, there's a lot of drivers to complete research, to write it up and publish it, to, to share it in academic um, forums. There's not a lot of driver for a researcher to see that through to translation. Um, you know, various granting and other sort of bodies talk about, you know, real world impact, but I'm not sure we've got a great metric for that. And of course, at the moment, you know, the metrics are all about uh, journal impact factors, citation rates and, and those sort of things. So they're the drivers. So maybe we need to examine the drivers for that. Um, at the clinical side, I think you find a lot of services where they would like to do new and innovative things, but they're struggling with the, the limited resources that they have and the overwhelming um, demand that their services have. So for a lot of them, it's just about trying to, to manage rather than to be able to innovate and try new things. Um, and so for, for that part of the, 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 the system, I think that there is a need to create some space, whether that's a resource space or a fiscal space, to allow for innovative practices to, to be tried. And then probably the other thing that probably would link these two things is some kind of network so that in terms of an implementation science approach, what you learn when you implement a research-based uh, practice can be fed back into a network of other practices so that they don't have to reinvent the wheel each time. Um, and if we could bring all of those things together, I think we might move from that 20-year gap down to a, a much, much shorter gap. It's really interesting because that really reminds me of the kind of original David Sackett model of EBM that you mm. kind of, you know, come up with a question and then you go around this circle of evidence-based practice and at the end you feed it back to the yeah. research community to start yeah. answering more questions. I, um, I recently reviewed a grant in another country, which I won't say which country. Um, but I actually thought the grant was beautiful because it was a, a nationwide project. It was going to be in a lot of clinics. But there was, there was exactly that. There was this implementation science approach to it. So over the five years of the project, the learnings of implementation, each of those clinics would be systematically fed back into that project network so that if the trial was positive at the end of it, this would already be established practice. Um, so you'd have a, a nearly zero-year research to practice um, translation, which I thought was just beautiful. Mm. And what do you think about the interest in the policy-making world and the commissioning world and the politicians' world about research evidence? I think, um, I th I think different players in that world are, are interested differently in, in research evidence. Um, I can remember seeing something on the internet, so obviously it must be true, um, <clears throat> that the average numbers of journal articles read by politicians is zero. I, I think it probably could be true. <laughs> um, I think what makes the biggest impact with, with politicians is 
a mild amount of evidence, but a, a story, a story about how this has affected somebody's life that they can actually relate to. And importantly for them, because their job is actually to sell this to the public if they decide to back it, that they can use that story or something similar to explain why they're committing the funds. For bureaucrats, quite often, who actually have to understand the evidence a bit more, I think there's, there's more interest in the, in the evidence, not necessarily getting down to a sort of a systematic literature review, but they definitely want to know what is it based on, um, what is the summation of those sort of things saying. And I think as researchers, we can help with translation by being willing to provide that um, to, to bureaucrats in, in a timely way if they show an interest. Um, Finally, I, th I think that the the other thing that we need to do around translation particularly is harness the great energy of the community. If you think about how many people's lives are affected by mental illness, this is one of the most dormant issues that, that hasn't been activated uh, in the world. Nearly every family will have somebody who's experienced mental ill health or they'll know someone that they care about um, and consistently, if you ask people, they want better care and more available care for the people that they care about. Um, one of the things I think has inhibited them standing up and demanding that has been the stigma around mental illness. But uh, I, I definitely know from our experiences in Australia, particularly when there was a, a concentration on this a few years ago, that huge numbers of people, hundreds of thousands of people, will support a campaign for better mental health care um, for, their, for their loved ones. And I think, uh, you know, not just in youth mental health, but across the lifespan um, as well. I, I know in Australia, um, and it's probably, you know, the, the, the domain I'm most familiar with, but recently, um, the last month or so, our Bureau of Statistics released the all-cause mortality um, statistics from last year, from 2017. Uh from 15 to 44 years of age, the number one thing that people died from in Australia was suicide. Um, it was the number three thing for the zero to 14-year-olds. And I think if they cut the data at a different point, if they had cut it at you know, 10 to 14, it probably would have been the number one cause in, in that age group. So if you think from, from probably about 10 years old to 44 years old, the number one cause of death is suicide. And nobody wants that to continue um, and we were lucky, I, I think, that um, it went from being the statistics to being on the national agenda um, because people will respond to this. And ultimately, a lot of suicide is a failure of appropriate care that could have intervened earlier. Um, so I think if we can harness the community, provide the information to the bureaucrats, and give the stories to politicians, we can actually create the change that we want to see. Thank <music> you.